going to your butt. <laughs> oh, hello. Welcome to episode 108 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. Join us always with my co-host, Mary, a woman who thought the Battle of Spotsylvania was about a dog. I am merely a shot down stump named Darren. Howdy, what? Mary. How are we doing? Are you talking doing? about the dog with spots named Vania? Well, we had a fun talk about that not too long ago. So, God. so what's going on with you? How are things? Good. How are you? Oh, fabulous. We just completed a fantastic uh, monthly roundtable with a lot of friends of ours who were on. So that was good. So if you've been on the roundtable, jump on. We get to talk a lot of Civil War nerdery, which is pretty cool. And um, yeah, and we get to do some fun stuff tonight. We get to finish up part two of our episode on Spotsylvania. But okay. since I'm a gracious host, as always, and I never forget, I'm going to ask you right now, what are you drinking on this fine evening? I am drinking, I think it's called Lord Juice by Lord Hobo Brewery, which is local to us here in Massachusetts. And I am drinking it out of my Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park mug. How about you? Because I'm nice. Asking. Oh, thanks for asking, Mary. I, I never thought you'd ask, as usual. I'm drinking, it's called 617 from Lord Hobo. 617, of course, is the um, area code for Boston. Of course, big night in Boston sports, Mary. we got the Celtics going tonight. Um, and then I'm drinking it out of my U.S. Grant mug because Grant is one we'll we talked about tonight as, as quite a bit as we talk about this part two of the Battle of Spotsylvania. Uh, and though, again, before we kind of get into it, we dropped off, we got to turn back time a little bit. Yeah, and talk about where we were. So, um, so we're back to finish up part two of this. And, and basically, when we left the boys in Spotsylvania, it was a very dire situation for Robert E. Lee and his very. army of Northern Virginia. So, by mid morning on Thursday, May twelfth of eighteen sixty four, this massive assault by U.S. Grant on that Confederate mule shoe salient was in its full fury. Now, nineteen thousand men under Winfield Scott Hancock, his Second Corps. He let his division commander, Francis Barlow, um, he hit that center. He broke right through on that eastern slope of mm-hmm. that mule shoe salient. Mary, if you've forgotten the whole episode, you can go back and listen to it if you've forgotten by now. Sorry. But Barlow's men, they had routed some of the best soldiers in the Army of Northern Virginia. I mean, we're talking about the Louisiana Tigers. We're talking about the famous Stonewall Brigade. Yeah. Um, they were completely removed from the battlefield as part of this Union assault. Not only was the Confederate line breached, but the soldiers were completely surrounded in the woods all around them. Uh, they would talk about musket fire lighting up the woods all around them. They yeah. had nowhere to go. The wounded couldn't go behind because they, they couldn't. They had nowhere yeah. to go. They, the one all soldier of- mentioned that um, the bayonet was freely used on both sides. The enemy fought desperately and nothing but the formation of our attack and de- despite desperate valor of our troops could have carried the point. So it's very horrific fighting here. At the, the mule shoe. It is. And this is all in a misty rain. It's been raining for a couple of days. It's muddy. It's sloppy. A thousand men stomping through. You can, only, you can only imagine. The eastern middle of the of the rebel line was gone. You know, so a soldier from the Stonewall Brigade, he talked about it. He goes, the keystone in our entire arch has been taken away. So you can imagine those blue uniforms are flowing through the breach like water through a dam at this point. Yeah. A Union soldier there, he said uh, after the battle about it, he goes, he thought this was the last day of the rebellion. He saw this was it. He thought he saw the end. And while this was all happening, Robert E. Lee, he's back at his camp in a place called the Harrison House. And he's completely oblivious to this catastrophe that's going on just a little bit north of him. Lee is going to begin to figure it out slowly but surely at what's going on. 
He's going to notice stragglers, people retreating to the back of, of yeah. Allegheny Johnson's division, of Ewell's Corps, and they're running for their lives. And, and, and Johnson, you know, himself, Allegheny Johnson, will be one of 4,000 casualties being captured. Yeah, him, Marilyn so, Stewart. A lot of them, they were all getting bagged. But when, when, the, when these retreating rebel soldiers are running past him, Lee, he has no idea what's going on. He's going to sit there in his horse. He's going to remove his hat so people can know it's him, apparently. And he's going he's gonna to basically yell to these men, hold on. You know, we're going to go form a new line. Your comrades need your services. Stop. Well, most of these men ignored him. They were running like they were chasing an ice cream truck. They were gone. <laughs> well, I think and it's in a way, so, it's kind of like what happened at Chickamauga with the breakthrough, right? Like they just, they're like, we're getting the, the well, hell out of here. It's every mm -hmm. man for himself. Yeah. You know, Lee's going to yell, shame on you, shame on you. Go back to your regiments. But again, he's not sure what's going on. It wasn't until a staff officer named, named Robert Hunter who had jumped on an artillery horse to escape, he was part of Allegheny Johnson's staff, is going to ride to the back, and he's going to um, try to get away himself. Hunter is going to see Lee, and he's going to ride up to him, and he's going to say, General, a line is broken at the angle in General Johnson's front. And right at that moment, I mean, Lee reportedly had been in a great mood. He was under the impression that Grant was retreating. Mm -hmm. He thought they were getting ready to do a big counter assault. They were going to bag him. And there's a story the night before, you know, he's back at the Harrison house having a jovial time, joking around with his staff. He's in a great mood. But when he gets this news from Hunter, everything changes. His heart sank. I mean, it was like you, it was like you grab that IPA in the fridge, but it turns out it's a seltzer water, that look of just oh, Or it's just dropping. really bad IPA. Oh, yeah. But he, he for the most part, he everything did a complete 180. And for Lee, this was the most existential serious threat he'd had this was it and he went from thinking they were going to chase grant down to the end of his army the end of the war in virginia the end of the war probably in the east and this is not a hyperbole this is this is literally how close it yeah. was this is how close grant came to finishing off lee on may 12 1864 at spotsylvania for good it was right here mm -hmm. yeah it it certainly is one of those moments where it's like well you know, and then it's like, if certain things had been a certain way, you know, could they have done it? But I think the one thing, and we'll probably talk about this later on in the episode, is just the weather is against them at this point, too. Like, well, it's just the terrible. Weather, the weather's been an issue the whole time. Yeah. Um, now, just picture Lee at this moment. He's like, what the hell? Because he yeah. knows whatever he's going to do in the next hour is probably yes. going to be literally life and death for his men yeah. and his army. Now, Lee did know he had one more division in reserve in the back. This was a division of Jubal Early. Mm -hmm. um, now, since A.P. Hill was sick, as usual, he wasn't yeah, there. Early, Early is going to take command of that third corps, which is going to promote a George named John Brown Gordon up yeah. to take over. Okay, So he is going to be in charge at this moment. Gordon, we'll talk about him in detail in one of these episodes, but for now, but in a nutshell, he's a slave-owning attorney who, despite having no military background, rises. He becomes a captain of those, ra those raccoon roughs on the 6th yeah. Alabama. Eventually, he'll take over the regiment. He'll fight at Seven Pines. And he's basically bulletproof. He's made a Teflon. Yeah. Well, he kind of cashes in his karma at Antietam. I mean, when right. he gets he, those wounds. He's, 
he's riding up to the front with the six Alabama at Seven Pines. Right in front, doesn't get a scratch on yep. him. But yeah, he, he gets he gets hit a lot. And Tatum shot in the face. He's and he's going to be out. But he is going to return, and he's going to ultimately end up being a rising star in Grant uh, in, in Lee's. He's army. kind of like in a way in the. Think of what Claiborne is in the Western theater. This is like John Brown Gordon is is like that too. The way he kind of rises up through the ranks and just becomes this like he's he's just good and he keeps getting better, you know. Yes, and so Lee and Lee and Hunter are going to go ride to go find Gordon mm-hmm. and to let him know what's going on because he's assuming like Lee that he has no idea what's going on up at the mule shoe. But Gordon, though, did have an idea what was going on. He didn't know for sure. But before Lee and Hunter arrived, Gordon did hear reports from stragglers that they, something was afoot at the Circle K. Yeah. And he, but he didn't know how, how serious it was. He basically was like, well, there's something going on. I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but i got to prepare for it. We said he couldn't see, he could hear stuff, but he couldn't through the mist and stuff when he woke up in the morning, like when he started getting reports, like he knew something was going on, but he said like the way the weather was, like he couldn't see through the mist. He couldn't tell exactly what was was going on. Right. Weather was a big equalizer with this. Now, Gordon has three brigades, but only one is going to be with him. And this is going to be a brigade of North Carolinians under Robert D. Johnston. Mm -hmm. R.D. Johnston, if you're nasty. Right, R. D. Johnston. Now, Johnston, you know, it's funny. Johnston's military. I don't know if anybody studies R. D. Johnston, but his military career isn't all that great. It's kind of whatever. But he's probably best known for being the father of Gordon Johnston. And if you study world, if, if you study the early twentieth century, mm. uh, Gordon got the Medal of Honor in the Philippine American War. Oh, okay, he'd all. He was also the football coach of the University of North Carolina in eighteen ninety six. I mean, so it, oh. that's that doesn't. Doesn't get except for me. Nobody really cares, but it's just one of those things. But Gordon's two other brigades uh, were his old brigade that was now commanded by a guy named Clement Evans. Uh, with this is a Pegram's brigade. Pegram had been um, had been injured a week earlier in the wilderness, mm-hmm. and and then Pegram's that brigade is being commanded by John Hoffman, and they're both they're both in the back, sensing something was wrong. Gordon, like to your point, he says something's up with the weather. He's hearing stuff. He's going to place R.D. Johnson's brigade in line. This is the 5th, the 12th, the 20th, and the 23rd North Carolina. And like the Union men a few hours earlier, to your point, he's going to use this weather to his advantage now. Mm-hmm. He knows he doesn't have enough men to create anything more than a strong skirmish line. Yeah. But he knows that the Union men probably can't see them, but they can probably hear them. And they're going to make the numbers look a lot bigger than they really are because it is hidden by that fog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the fog really is hiding like what is there and all that, and they really don't know. They're like at this point, what do we do? Kind of thing, right? And well, they knew they couldn't last long. They knew at some point they were going to get discovered. But he hoped at worst that Johnson's North Carolinians would at least buy him some time mm-hmm. for Hoffman and Evans to get up. Yeah, which is kind of what happens. Johnston's men do line up and they begin to move in that line towards the woods, heading towards the eastern slope of that mule shoot to help slow that Union roll as they begin to come through the woods, heading towards that McCool house. So they're kind of working their way through now. Artie Johnston's going to get shot in the head. He's going to survive, but he's going to get wounded when this yeah. whole thing goes. It was right about this moment as the, as the Carolinians are moving through the woods 
that Lee and Hunter are going to show up at Gordon's headquarters. Yeah, yeah, he just appears on Traveler, you know. Well, he's in he in Gordon. They're going to he's going to explain to Lee that he anticipated what's going on. He got his men going, and Lee was obviously very happy to hear this. Not long after, Hoffman and Evans do arrive. So now they're getting reinforcements moving up towards uh, towards the line. Yeah. The commander of the 49th North Carolina, he was in Pegram's brigade, was called Extra Billy Smith's brigade, because he was he commanded the point. names um, in the Civil War, Extra Billy Smith. Oh yeah, but it was a guy named Colonel John Catlett Gibson, and he saw that. And this was a lot of cool stories about this part of the battle. He's going to see Lee riding up, riding yeah. towards him, and Gibson is going to salute him, and. Lee's going to ignore him and ride right by. He's going to ghost him. I know the feeling. He's going to ride right by him. And at this point, um, Lee is heading up to a, to the gap between where Hoffman's Virginians and where Evans's Georgians are heading towards the front now. So he's kind of going right through the middle. And just imagine the scene. Bullets are zipping by. And there's that story where Gordon is going to notice a staff officer named Thomas Jones. He's going to be riding on his horse. He's going to be leaning forward, hugging the horse's neck yeah. and, and, and crouching down. Now, Gordon, he whenever he rode into battle, he rode high on the horse like Fabio in the cover yeah. of a Danielle Steele novel. He always looked like that because hair blowing <laughs> in the wind. But he always That needs to be very, a meme, by the way. <laughs> but, but he stood very erect on his horse, very tall, because it, it just showed leadership. And at that moment, a bullet is going to clip the back of Gordon's jacket. And Jones is gonna is gonna see this. He's gonna yeah. run up to him and go, "General, are you shot." And Gordon says, "No." He goes, "But if I was hunched over like you, that bullet would have hit me in the side. I would be killed. So stop acting like a coward." And so he says <laughs> wow. that to Jones. It isn't so. So it, so at this point, Lee is riding towards the front now, and Gordon is gonna um is gonna see him, and he's gonna ride up to him and he's gonna stop. He's gonna grab the. What is that thing? The, the bridle. The bridle, left yeah. Of, tra- of traveler's yeah. fate, of space. Yeah. That little thing next to his face. He's going to grab onto and stop him. Colonel Gibson, he's going to ride up and grab one on the right side. They're going to be holding traveler's horse, so Lee can't go anywhere, mm-hmm. right? And they're going to basically try to pull him back. Now, during this, Lee was not saying a word. He was just sitting with his hat in his hand, looking stoic off into space towards the woods. Just imagine what was going through his mind. Mm-hmm. One of his soldiers said the general's confidence showed that he had despair and was ready to die rather than see the defeat of his army. So his demeanor and his presence in front was, was clearly to motivate his men. And this was the third time in the last week that yep. he'd done this. He'd ride up to the front and he would try to show his men. But Gordon, he's gonna. this is going to be a good conversation with him to Lee now. Gordon's going to tell Lee, he goes, you must not expose yourself. Your life is too valuable to the army and the Confederacy for you to risk it so wantonly. We are Georgians. We are Virginians. We do not need such encouragement. Colonel Gibson, he's going to sit there and, and, and while this is saying all, all the men are going to be yelling, you know, no, we don't yeah. need it. No, no, no. And because, you know, they don't, what they're trying to tell him is we don't need Lee to be up here to fight hard. We're going to fight hard and we don't need to risk the big man. We don't need to risk his life. Gibson went on. He says, there is not a soldier in this Confederacy that would not gladly lay down his life to save you from harm. And the men are all standing there and they're all young, you know, and they're basically saying, we're not going to fight as long as you're here. 
you know, to, mm-hmm. to take your ball and go home, or we're not going to going to be fighting. And so they're going to be they're going to be yelling, and and Lee's going to sit there just staring off into the woods. Maybe he was looking for the Rosewoods clown. We don't know, <laughs> but but he just but he's just looking all serious, and he's just staring. And Gordon again, he's starting to get he's starting to get his dander up. Yeah. He's going to say, generally, there's this is no place for you. Go back. We will drive them back. These men are from Virginia and Georgia. They have never failed me, and they will they will not fail me now. Will you, boys? And of course, the men are going, no, no, and they're all chanting, "Lead to the rear, lead to yep, the rear." Yep, yep. And then Gordon's finally going to release Travel's bridle, and uh, and that staff officer on the other side is going to grab it, and he's going to start pulling him back. You can only imagine what this guy's thinking, yep. pulling Robert E. Lee back, and this, this, this staff guy. But Lee is going to go, and they're going to pull him back, and Evans' men are going to line up on the right, and Hoffman's guys are going to line up on the left. In that traditional, that linear formation. Yeah. And they're going to begin to move towards those woods, towards Barlow's guys, the eastern slope of the mule shoe. And with Gordon's men now moving, Lee is going to turn to Robert Hunter now. And he's going to try to help him try to ride, you know, get stragglers, go round people up to send to Gordon, who must have been, he must have looked at Gordon like, you know, like candy at this point. I'd have been like, no. Because he's going, he's chasing, he's he's getting men to, to go fight with Gordon, not for Yule or anybody else, right? And while he's riding, and this is, and speaking of Yule, while they're riding around to look for men, Lee is going to come upon the Second Corps commander Richard Yule, and when he when he finds when he finds Yule, now Yule had just lost Allegheny Johnson, he lost most of the entire division. Um, he was pissed because those 20 artillery pieces got there, but now they're pretty much gone. And at that point, they've, they've all been captured. So, you know, Yule must have been in a Monday morning merry mood, I imagine, because he was not happy. He was what? just pissed off, and he was losing his mind. He's screaming at his men. He's hitting them with his sword. He's screaming, trying to rally his men. And Lee's going to find him at this moment while he's losing it. And he's going to ride up to, to Yule. He's going to calmly say in that Virginian voice, he's going to say, General Yule, if you cannot control yourself, how can you control your men? <laughs> I heard that in Martin and, Sheen's voice, by the way. And I, and I always hear Sheen's voice now. Yeah, so Thanks I, for that. I always hear Martin Sheen's <laughs> voice. I'd never hear Robert Duvall's. Only Sheen. No, I, Only Sheen. But you, ha- you have to think, he must, you have to imagine it for Lee at that moment, just a comparing and contrasting Gordon's demeanor with Yule. Now, admittedly, Yule just saw his half his core destroyed. Yeah. So it's a little bit of an apples and oranges thing. But with Lou, 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 uh, Yule losing it and Gordon coming, leading his men against Barlow, to, um, you know, he, he's, he's, you can just see how this whole thing is going now. Now they're gonna. Gordon is gonna take his men, and they're gonna fight, and they're gonna trade shots for the rest of the battle. But for the most part, where the rubber meets the road now is gonna take place on the western slope of this mule shoe. Yeah, this is heading towards where Armory Upton had his breakthrough. On the other side, that western slope is when things are gonna get really, really crazy. Yeah, and that's so, where Rhodes is, and Rams are right they're fighting so, there. So, Stephen Rams from North Carolina. He's gonna. He's in Rhodes Division. He's gonna be the first one that's gonna counter charge. This is gonna be the second, the fourth, the fourteenth, and the thirtieth North Carolina. They're gonna attack that mule shoe. Colonel Brian Grimes. He's in the fourth North Carolina. He's Rams are second in command. He's gonna write of this part of the assault. He's gonna write 
The Yankees cut down at least one-third of our boys, notwithstanding this withering fire. Our boys made no such halts other than to pour into the enemy's ranks. The land we charged over was literally covered with the enemy's dead. The field was perfectly blue with them. And so you can just, just, just imagine the yeah. mud and the rain. Um, who the person in charge of slowing this count, this countertop again, this counter-assault is D- still David Belberni, that 20,000 man division who was bearing down on the end, this end of the mule shoe, which is not, like I said, not far from where Emory Upton had his, had his yeah. assault a few days before. Yeah. Confederate third Corps, uh, guys from Abner Perrins, uh, Alabamans, you know, then William, De- uh, William Mahone's division, they're going to go in and Perrin, upon seeing this, the lunacy of this assault, because yeah. they're going, running at the meat grinder, he's going to say, I will come out of this fight a live major general or a dead brigadier. That's what he's going to say. Yes. Well, guess what? So he's, he's going to be charging yeah. with his sword over his head. Which one do you think he comes back as? He comes back as the dead brigadier. He ends up getting he gets, shot seven times in this battle. He gets he gets shot seven times and yeah. killed instantly. So he, he ain't going to make it. His men are going to fall back and they're going to form a line and they're going to begin to push on Bernie's men. This rebel counterattack is, is basically creating a stalemate. And that's the goal is to create a stalemate. Mm-hmm. Next to Perrin's guys is going to be Nathaniel Harris's Mississippians. Guys from the 12th, 16th, 19th, and 48th, 48th Mississippi. And the Mississippi men. They equally talked about the carnage that they saw. You know, one of them wrote, the breastworks were slippery with blood and rain, dead bodies lying underneath and trampled out of sight. So you just can imagine the situation. It's rainy. It's mud. I mean, you think about you walked on a path in the mud that 100 people have already walked down. Picture thousands now. It was dead bodies in the mud and you're up to your knees and mud and crap yeah and the mud here is like just because of the the soil and the in this area of virginia it's such that when it rains a lot like it has been at spotsylvania like the mud becomes really sticky and thick and it's like one of those ones where like your shoe literally will stick in the stay in the mud and it'll stay there kind of thing like oh just think of the lost shoes right yeah it's just, the, 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 just think of that situation. Yeah. And but this is this is a lot worse. And the Confederates, they're they're still coming now. After Harris's Mississippians, is gonna be a thirteen hundred man South Carolina brigade of Sam McGowan, who was in the great Cadmus Wilcox's division. Mm-hmm. So they're gonna be coming. McGowan's gonna join this line and he's gonna help push Bernie back because they're looking to redeem themselves because they got pants pretty hard at the wilderness a couple of days early, this McGowan, yeah. South Carolinians, right? So if you remember, we haven't done a wilderness thing, but generally famous said to, to McGowan, my God, General McGowan, is your splendid brigade of yours, are they running like a flock of geese? He said to McGowan. Oh. And so McGowan remembers this. And so he's he's going to be fighting hard. He's now there. His men are rushing full in through that knee-deep mud. And McGowan's going to get shot in the arm. It'll be his fourth injury of the war. And if he survives it, but he, he's going to take a hit too. It's about 9 o'clock in the morning now. That's all it is at this point. All the things we've talked about, we're at 9 a.m. Yeah. Ma- Mary's first beer time, 9 a.m. And these guys have already been fighting for this long. And so coming down, bearing on 
coming down on the union side is now the six core yeah. of Horatio Wright we talked about last time. It's 20,000 guys. They're going to be pushing towards a mule shoe now, and they're going to be in that field. Remember we talked about the fields earlier with, with Barlow? Yep. There was kind of that ravine that they created cover. Yep. That's, that's where these guys are now. And as the union men begin to converge on this mule shoe, they're going to follow kind of a natural slope up, and it's going to lead to basically – it's going to lead to kind of a, like a break in a line right where McGowan, South Carolinians are charging. Mm-hmm. It's going to it's going to funnel them sort of right towards this area. It's going to push them towards the same area, and this area where they're going to meet is where the next twenty plus hours of fighting is going to go. This area has been called Hell's Half Acre, but it's been more famously called the Bloody Angle. This is where this is going to take place, and just just imagine this crowded hellhole with both Union and Confederate troops right on top of each other, fighting hand-to-hand in the rain, in the mud for 20 mm. straight hours is what this is going to do. Firing each other's faces at point-blank range. Just bayonet, the dead like, like using the, the bayonet, yeah. like just and like anything. clubbing each other with the end of the rifles and all that. Like it's just it's... these guys were biting each other, scratching each other. Yeah, I mean they would they they would. This was this was as close to literal hell on earth as you will ever find in this mm-hmm. very moment. Yeah, a lot of they guys who ne- fought here they said they they never wanted to see anything like it again. Like it's very horrific fighting. Well, those reports, men said, because we weren't men, we were demons at yeah. that moment. They were fighting like animals, like demons. John Haley of the 17th Maine, he's in Bernie's division. He described the scene as a seething, bubbling, roaring hell of hate and murder. That's how he describes it. Mm-hmm. So this, this is how vivid these people are. The dead bodies were stacked up like cordwood. Mm-hmm. They were being used as, as breastworks. To protect yeah. this, the live soldiers. Yeah, that's what Just they had to do. You- like they start using, and it's kind of, in a way, that's what happened um, at Mary's Heights, right? Like, I think it was some of the soldiers. Like Chamberlain was one of the ones laying right. in the field that night that had to like cover himself with dead bodies to protect himself. Yeah. They're doing this again, but on a larger scale to make basically entrenchments out of them. Exactly. A Union soldier described a body that was used to protect the others. He said that he said that body was hit five thousand times. He said his body looked more like a sponge after the battle. That's how many times this guy got oh hit. Oh my god! And just just imagine nine thirty in the morning now, Thursday the twelfth of May, eighteen sixty four. Okay, the site of this bloody angle is ground zero of Civil War combat. And just have some quotes of other soldiers, just other soldiers describing this. A soldier from New Jersey, he wrote, at every assault and repulse. New bodies fell on the heaps of the slain and over the filled ditches, the living fought on the corpses of the fallen. The wounded were covered by the killed and expired under piles of their comrades' bodies. So the wounded were getting suffocated and drowned in the mud by the dead yeah. bodies on top of them. Yeah. A federal soldier saw one of, the, one of his comrades shot in a fit of anger. He took his bayonet-tipped musket and threw it like a spear at the Confederate. And a witness to this wrote, the force which he threw it drove the bayonet entirely through his chest, bearing it at least four inches of the muzzle of the gun in the breast of the Confederate, who uttered the most unearthly yell I ever heard from human lips as he fell over with the gun still sticking in him. Oh my God. So he basically harpooned the guy. Yeah. With, with this, and it just, and right through, 
wave after wave of these Union troops go flooding in. Yeah, one guy said, God forbid, should I ever gaze on a site like this ever again? Now, the, the, the point for Lee, though, Lee had no chance to drive these men back. What Lee wanted to do was create a, a quagmire. Mm-hmm. He wanted to create a stalemate right there. Yeah. Because while while this was going on, he was going to create a second defensive line in the back. So he was hoping these men were going to create this bottleneck if the Confederates were going to hold them. So he could rally troops, build a second defense line. So when they got through, they had a better defense line. Winfield Scott Hancock, he, he's, you know, he's still at the Landro House, right? And he's still trying to fire those 24-pound mortars at the lines, but they're hitting his own men, so he stopped. You know, the the fighting was so bad, they said that the trees, it looked like an army of locusts had gotten them. Yeah, well, if you look at the, like, I mean, for instance, the painting that I have on my background, you know, and anything like that, like, it looks like a winter scene, right? Because there's no foliage on the trees, but there should be because it's May. Right. There's not because everything has been shot off by what like artillery, the mm-hmm. bolt, like the mini balls, all that. It's all gone because of that. It looks like, you know, kind of like those scenes you see from World War One in the trenches, right? right? But the, but the thing is, there's no artillery taking these trees. This no. is musket fire. Yeah, three total acres of forest are completely destroyed by musket fire at this battle, and this is not the idea. There was one soldier, he said he fired 400 rounds in this battle. 400. There's a, there was a 22-inch oak tree right on the Confederate line that was cut down by musket fire and fell in the 4th South Carolina. And only the stump remained. So we'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But amazingly to this point, there was still 17 more hours to go in this fight yeah. right at this line. You know, And again, Lee's goal wasn't to drive Grant off. It was just to create a stalemate. So while this is all going on, Lee is in the back and he is getting his rebs in a reserve line. We're furiously trying to build a defense line. And as the fighting went through the afternoon and on the evening of of, uh, May 12th, that defensive line grew stronger and stronger thanks to the men in the Confederacy at the Mule Shoe who were keeping Grant's men from getting at them. So early in the morning, around 2 o'clock in the morning now, so this is the 13th now. Mm-hmm. The Confederates are going to slowly begin to fall back. Yeah. A couple minutes at a time, they're going to sneak back. And after 20 hours of this mule shoe, they're going to they're going to start to fall back. Now, the Union troops, when they realize what's going on, they're going to slowly creep forward because they're like, all right, we just had the most vicious battle we've ever been in. We're going to take it slow here. We know what the hell is in front of us. Yeah. They're going to move cautiously, and they're going to get to jet the field right where the cool house is. And they're going to look further back to the Harrison house. This was Lee's original headquarters. And there they're going to see a new line of breastworks, 100 yards long. And on top of that, what do they see? This artillery. They yeah. see artillery. And they're like, well, we're in four now. And it's ironic this time. It was Grant who thought Lee was retreating. As early, A couple hours earlier, it was, it, was yeah. the, it was the other way around. Yeah. Right? It was, and like one soldier, when he talked about what was going on, um, it was Private Carter of the 22nd Massachusetts. He said, I have been lying in a rifle pit for 24 hours during a continued rain and with the severe cold, enemy's bullets, and the deep mud and water. Not mentioning the cramped position of my poor body, you may imagine my present position. So this is a guy that was in a rifle pit at the, the bloody angle. 
for 24 hours. And this is a union yeah. guy. Like that, that, like when I read that quote, I was like, what? Like, well, just many- look at the numbers it, at, at the Yule, at the mule shul alone, 17,000 total casualties, 8,000 yeah. rebels, 9,000 union men right there at the line. Ambrose Burnside's ninth corps. They basically didn't do anything. They demonstrated Governor yeah. K. Warren of his fifth corps. He was over on Laurel Hill on the other side. Yeah, um, they not, they tried yeah. they tried to do something, but they they failed. They, yeah. they really couldn't do anything either. So they said that if you walked across the field for the mule shoe, you could step all the way across without touching the ground because the bodies. That's how many bodies yeah. were on this on this ground. Yeah, yeah, that's and, like like you said the the one from the seventeenth Maine. A seething, bubbling, roaring hell of hate yeah. and murder. But Grant, he's undaunted. He still wants to fight. He's going to message Washington, and he's mm-hmm. going to he's going to tell them that he intends to he intends to fight on this line if it takes all summer. Mm-hmm. That's what he's that's what he messages Washington. Um, Grant's strategy again was was really not to fall back on May thirteenth uh, uh, with this new with this the rain still falling and this new rebel line still set up. Yeah. Grant's going to Grant's going to write. He's going to continue to write. The enemy is obstinate and seem to have found the last ditch. So Grant, what is he going to do? He's going to move his army again. Yeah, right? he's going to reorient his lines. He's going to shift the center of the action to the east of Spotsylvania, where he thinks the battle can be renewed. So that involves the the 5th Corps and the 6th Corps. They're ordered to move behind the 2nd Corps and take positions past the Right, he he right. wants, but he wants the rain to slow down. He's, yeah. He says the rain, the rain's yeah, he's like, stop. we can't he's, do this in the rain. He we can let this go. So he's going to do that for a little while. But to your point, he's going to move much of his army to the left. But he's going to on the on the seventeenth, he's going to pull Hancock's second corps back to the right, and he's going to decide again to attack this mule shoe again. That's where he's going to go. But he's going to again supported by Wright's sixth corps and Burnside's ninth corps, and. This point, Lee, I mean, he'd been fooled once. He ain't going to get fooled again. No. He sniffed this. He sniffed this move out. So instead, he didn't abandon, you know, what was left uh, when when Grant left. When Grant pulled out, he didn't take off. He left his men there this time. Mm-hmm. And this time, he put artillery there. So just like last time, where he pulled the artillery, when Grant was moving to his to his right, he this time he didn't take the bait. He stayed and he, he reinforced yeah. with artillery. So when they when they end up coming back, when Hancock did attack again, this time Ewell's artillery is there and it's going to drive them back pretty easily. Actually, it's mm-hmm. going to push them back. Grant's going to realize that maybe it's time to finally pull out of this mule shoe, and he kind of does. So on the nineteenth, he he decides to do a different plan. And he's going to try to do what he can because he sees Lee behind his breastworks now. And he knows yep. he's going to get him out and into the open. So he's going to basically – this time he's going to – again, he's going to use Hancock's second corps. Who been – God, they need a vacation when this one's over. By God. The he's going to use Hancock's second corps and he's going to use them basically as bait this time. Yeah. So without any support – He's going to send them to a place called the Harris Farm, in which was between Fredericksburg and Richmond, and he hopes that it was like the it was like the the goat in Jurassic Park with the T Rex. Yeah, he's going to set them there, and he's going to wait and hope Lee comes out and sees he's, it's Hancock, it's a bait. He's going to come out, and then he's going to bag him. The problem, though, is Hancock. When Hancock's getting ready to move out, Lee already drew up plans of his own. Yep. 
I mean, he's not sitting idling by like like me on a Friday night. No. <laughs> what? You know, you know what Lee does? He orders Yule to take his second corps, his divisions of Robert Rhodes and John Brown Gordon, yeah. his eight thousand guys, to move northeast up the Brock Road, kind of like Stonewall's flank attack at Chancellorsville. Yeah, kind of. yeah, it's similar. To, it's very similar to this. But but not to attack though. That's the difference. He's not doing like Jax did against Howard to attack. He's taking them to go around and do reconnaissance. Yeah. He wants to see what the hell's going on. They're going to take a wide route and they're going to end up themselves at the Harris Farm, which is ironic because that's where Hancock was going to go. Yeah. But at the Harris Farm was waiting there was a, was a bunch of Union heavy artillerists yeah. who had been recently transferred to the infantry, so they're green. Yeah. Not easy being green. No. Kermit said that. He's right. <laughs> So they're going to end up basically – now, here's the thing. What does Lee tell you? He says, go scout the position, yeah. but do but do not what? Do not, do not bring on a general uh, engagement. Do, do you realize Lee must have been like, why do I even bother saying this? Like he it's, must it's, have been like, wow, is this deja vu? I'm saying it again for the umpteenth time. When did I say this well, before? And look what happened. And of course, Yule says, sure thing, boss. And as soon as he gets there, he brings on a general mm-hmm. engagement again. Yule, without support, is going to hit these green troops anyways, and they're going to fight throughout the day of May 19th. Um, now, it's not a, it's a large scale like the previous mule shoe was, but there's going to be a fight there. But the Federals are going to get support. David Bell Burney's division is going to show up and also going to get a regiment from the 1st Maryland. Mm-hmm. So now, now Yule is in trouble, and when he learns about this attack, he messages Yule and says, get out of there, ASAFP. Because he knows he's alone. Yeah. He's all by himself. And he's already lost a ton of guys. Yeah, but he's so, going to end up losing 900 men anyway because a lot of them get lost on their way back in the dark. And right. Get and that's the problem. Is that if they're fighting all day on the 19th, yeah. it's going to get dark. And they, for whatever reason, they didn't look, they didn't put breadcrumbs down where they went. They had no idea where they were going. <laughs> so they're walking back and, and 900 guys get bagged. They get lost in the woods. Yeah. And so, you know, Lee's move to Harris Farm, which would really end up slowing Hancock, his his plan to move Hancock, you know, there by himself. Yeah, Lee never falls for Grant's trap of attacking Hancock, right? Like, yeah, right. And so, by the time, so by the time Grant finally sent Hancock's second corps as part of this bait thing he was going to do, yeah, it wasn't until late on the twentieth and maybe early the twenty first, right around there. But Lee didn't fall for it because Lee just kept going. Instead, what does Lee do? He's going to head parallel to his army along that along that North Anna River is what he's going to do, um, and so Lee's going to kind of exit the dance floor here. And for the most part, this is going to this is going to basically end that two week battle. It kind of just like fizzles out really right. slowly. You know that that's the one thing that was kind of surprising about this battle is I'm like, there should be more, but I I get why. Like I I think I mean I think just just my opinion, but I think the weather really exhausted the troops more than what grant and including lee it, it thought that it would right um well it, it, it really it, it slowed them the, down because like i mean i didn't want to say it ends with a whimper but but there was no grand pickets charge at no, end of the battle no there was there was that the harris farm engagement was was kind of a it, it was it was a light attack for the most part, and Lee yeah. basically said, "You know what? I'm not going to fall for this. I'm just, I'm just going to fall back." And he and he did. So, it's the second most bloodiest. It's the second battle, but it's the most bloodiest in the Overland campaign. 
and it's a top it's a it's a big time battle i mean as, as far as a winner and a loser it was yeah. basically inconclusive but i mean the, but the number only, of casualties what is it 32,000 32,000 19,000 of a grant 18,000 for lee yeah. now many of many of these were captured during the first and part of the mule shoot, yeah. they lost a lot of guys. They lost a lot of generals. Marilyn Stewart, they lost. Allegheny Johnson, they shot. And Harry Hayes was was shot down yeah. on this one. Um, a lot of McGowan got shot down on this one again. So a lot of this. And the, the Battle of Spotsylvania, believe it or not, is going to end up the third bloodiest battle in the entire war. Yeah. When you look at the, with the carnage, it's, it's after Gettysburg, after Chickamauga, but it's, it's ahead of Antietam. It's ahead of Shiloh as far as total casualties go, and it, it's just a bloody battle. But but it, what's good about Spotsylvania is that you know it, it goes on a little bit, and you know we've been talking about these blood and mud and death. So maybe we'll kind of go on a happy note here a little bit and try to kind of lighten the mood, I guess, right? You know, and so we talked before about that tree stump. Yeah, and this is a great story. It just it just yeah. is. So we mentioned before, you know, that that 22-inch oak tree that was shot down by musket fire, it just left a stump that was riddled with musket balls. The, the part of the tree that fell, it was the, the soldiers must have grabbed that souvenir. They, they all took it. But the stump remained there for a little while. Now, the stump itself is a cool story. Now, the last time we did this, we didn't mention him. Tonight was Nelson Miles, right? He's one of Barlow's division commanders we talked about in Hancock's Second Corps. He remembered the stump from the battle. And right after the war, he returned to Spotsylvania with some soldiers. They were on their way to Washington. It was right after the 13th Amendment got signed. They were going to go back and they were going to kind of um, just go, go. And they end up camping on the battlefield, the old Spotsylvania battlefield. And they went to go find the stump. And he goes to Muleshoe and he, he goes and guess what? Ain't there. It's gone. The stump is gone. So he's like, ah, okay, whatever. We looked. It's not here. Someone must have jacked it. Yeah. Later that night, Miles is having dinner at a place called the Spotswood Inn with his men. And they're just curious. They're shooting, you know, they start talking to some of the locals. Hey, you never, you never know what happened to that stump that was in Spotsylvania. It's, it's just gone. And, you know, and of course, no one, no, no one knew. But right before they're about to leave the restaurants, um, one of Miles' officers, a guy named John D. Black, he said a waiter came up to them and kind of uh, said, hey, psst. he goes, uh, I know where the stump is. And like, you do? He goes, the owner of this hotel has it in his in his uh, in one of the outbuildings locked up in the back. Wow. You're like, really? So Miles and his staff confront the inn owner and he bumbled and stumbled around more, more where some of the Philadelphia 76ers in May. And so he ends up opening, he's basically saying, I don't have it. He goes, Well, open the door. He says, No. They actually take an axe and cut the door down. Inside, what do they find? They find the stump. It's actually oh. inside. And they take it and they liberate the stump and they bring it back to Edwin Stanton, who ends up putting in the war department. And this thing goes on the goes on a world tour. Uh, 28 years later, 1893, the Spotsylvania stump is now making an appearance at the World's Fair in Chicago. You know, it, it's over and it's it's at the World Fair in Chicago. But then in 1888, a couple years before that, it was transferred to the American History Museum. And if you go on the third floor of that museum of the Smithsonian, you'll see it. Mm-hmm. It's there. It's very cool. And, and it's it's pretty it's pretty neat. If it's pretty neat if you go there and see it because and if you go to the battlefield now, there used to be a um with the stump gone, they put up there a There was marker. a marker there. 
and it had a nice plaque on it, and the plaque walked away. It's gone. But if you go to the mule shoe now, you'll see this concrete slab. No one knows. It doesn't say anything, but that's where the tree was. So it's pretty. It's it's pretty neat. But that mule shoe area, it, it's in. You go there now, and it, you're really taken aback by how peaceful it is. And there are countless bodies still there because yeah. after the war, because what they did was they when the when they when the soldiers vacated. The union guys who stayed, instead of burying the bodies, they just poured dirt over the trench. Yeah, they were already they already were in the mud, and they just pushed dirt over it. Yeah, and so they came to find bodies later on. Some of the southern ones were transferred around the corner to the Spotsylvania Cemetery. The northern ones got sent to Fredericksburg, but there's definitely, definitely bodies there, and mm-hmm. that's why you could when you walk in those grounds, um, those hallowed grounds there at Spotsylvania, you, you keep that in mind because if you go. It, it, it's you're struck by how peaceful it is and how pretty it is but again it's it's ground zero of civil war combat and it just yeah. turns into an absolute absolute disaster yeah it's i mean you read some of the quotes from the men that fought there and they're just um you know one guy the soldier from the 110th ohio said in many places the dead and wounded lay three or four deep with muskets cartridge boxes blankets and everything pertaining to a soldier's gear all in the wild is confusion. And that's, you know, the fighting at the bloody angle. And another same soldier said the face and parallel ditches were filled with water and blood and the dead from the rains were bleached and ghastly. In many cases, the wounded were so tangled and wedged in among the dead as to be utterly unable to extricate themselves without our help. God grant that such another slaughter may never occur. And that's a soldier from the 110th Ohio. And it's, it is it is definitely, as you said, like it's ground zero for Civil War combat. And today it's a very peaceful place. Some parts of Spotsylvania are kind of just kind of have that eerie feeling to them. But overall, it's a very kind of peaceful battlefield to visit. It, it is. And we could have read dozens more of these soldiers. Oh, there's so much of this, this too. And, you know, a lot. And, and the other thing, too, that we found um, was that a lot of the soldiers... Um, they talk about the weather and there was even an article written in, I think it was just a couple years ago in a civil war journal about specifically the weather at Spotsylvania. And that played a huge role as well. Like um, E.P. Alexander Confederate, he said that we were unconsciously delivered by darkness and the mud and the rain and the darkness and difficulties triumphed. It helped It helped the Confederates to, he said it saved them in this battle. Just the weather was, E.P. Alexander said the weather was a factor that saved us in this battle. Had had it not been bad weather, things might have been very, very different. The weather helped and hurt both sides, there's no question yeah. about it. It, it. it certainly hurt um, the Union at the beginning. Sitting Sheridan to Yellow Tavern, taking away the cavalry certainly hurt. But it was a battle that... Um, People look at it as one of the big boys, but for whatever reason, it seems it seems to fall below um, the radar with a lot of folks. And uh, it's it's one that when you really study this, it just shows that that sea change we talked about of Grant of not falling back of continu- continually hitting Lee, Lee trying to stay between him and Richmond because he still thinks he's trying to take Richmond. Yeah. He doesn't realize that that Grant is is kind of looking for his head, and just how vicious it was. By then, this is the, the you know, third summer of the war. 
Uh, these are battle-tested veterans, most of them, yeah. and they they would just at this point the, the blood and the carnage was adding up. And Spotsylvania, that mule shore, Spotsylvania, is um it, it's it's one of the most violent places on earth that you will ever go to, and it's it's a great battlefield to visit. It's it's very interpreted very very well, but like we said before, there's not a lot of monuments, there's not a lot of statues. You can just go there and you can hear the story. You can hear in the wind. Just you know you know the battle. Mm-hmm. And you can just imagine seeing the same things that Barlow saw or Hancock saw or Gordon saw. Emory Upton. You can walk that same trail and you can see what they saw. So um, I think Spotsylvania is a great is a great study because it's that harbinger of what's to come on this Orland campaign. It set the stage, obviously, for North Ann River. It set the stage for Cold Harbor and obviously the Petersburg siege, that hammer blow one after the other, that grand dent that stuck on Lee. Yeah. And the, how tough you had to be to stand in a mule shoe and fight. Just look at that stump at the Smithsonian. All those bullets yeah. in there. Um, and just just imagine what it must have been like. So, Yeah, and, and you know, too, like that's the other thing, too. 1864 Civil War, you and I have talked about this, is, I mean, the entire Civil War is horrific. But 1864 is... Like it's such a, I don't know, some, somehow it gets even more horrific from 1863. And you see that too, not just with Spotsylvania in the Eastern theater, you see it in the Western theater too. And we're going to be talking about one of those battles coming up, Pickett's Mills, very horrific battle on a much smaller scale than Spotsylvania. It's only a day, you know, and in a much smaller area. But, you know, I think 1864 is just a, it's a different beast when it comes to the fighting in both the Eastern and Western theater for the civil war. It definitely does. It definitely is. So I think it's a good place to drop it here. I think, I think we, um, I think we did it justice as well. So um, we will do some things. So, so we have an announcement to make Mary. And so I'll let you do the honors on this one. All right. So um, we are going to be in Gettysburg for the 160th this year, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. So on July the 1st, we are partnering with the Gettysburg Foundation and our friend Mark Blanchard, who he is, um, he's part of the Gettysburg Foundation. On July 1st at 4.30, we are going to be doing a tour of the Spangler Farm. And Mark Blanchard of the Gettysburg Foundation is going to be doing that tour for us. So um, if you're going to be in Gettysburg on that day, um, come out to the Spangler Farm at 4.30. Uh, you can park your car out there, and Mark will give us a tour of the farm. He's very good at it. He's excellent at it. We've had a tour with him before out there, but that's what we're going to be doing. So that's really awesome that we're able to partner with them for that because mm-hmm. they are yeah. a uh, – Gettysburg Foundation is amazing. They do so much um, mm-hmm. for for Gettysburg. Yeah, the Spangler Farm, if, if you don't know the area that well, it's the 11th Corps Field Hospital. It's where Lou Armistead died. Uh, it's, it's where George Nixon died. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of cool stories. And the place closes at 3. We're going to get it going later ourselves, just a private little thing. That's yeah, the free. Fourth, 4.30 gonna, is private yep. tour. So It's not, it's not, it's not going to cost any money. You can drive in. And so Will sends an invitation out somewhere along the way, probably on social media to sign up for it. But, but um, hopefully you come. And Mark does a great job with the tours, as does everybody else at Gettysburg Foundation. And uh, you guys will get the a private tour of one of the cooler places in all of Gettysburg, of course, that would be the Spangler Farm, the 11th Corps Field Hospital. Yeah, so, it is so, are, it, it, it's, it's such a, 
um, for me, it's one of it's one of my favorite spots on the battlefield. I mean, I shouldn't say the battlefield because it's a field hospital, so it's not really on the battlefield. But eleventh, uh, um, you know, the eleventh corps is out there. Carl Schurz was. Um, they know he was there for sure. Um, they don't think Oliver Otis Howard was there at all. Um, but it, there's a lot of cool stuff to see out there. It's a very humbling place. It's it's very peaceful but very eerie. They have a Rosecrans ambulance out there, which was obviously invented by General William Rosecrans, who we've talked about many times before. You can go into the barn out there, into the summer kitchen as well, where Lou Armstead died. It's a vi- it, it's a really cool. Place. It's a cool. It's a cool place. So so watch the watch the social medias for that. Hopefully you can get to do that. So as far as episodes go, Mary, what what is coming up for us next after after uh, for that? So our next episode is going to be Pickett's Mills. Oh, going back to the Western exciting. Western Theater Atlanta campaign. Um, we're going to be doing that, um, and then we are going to be having our Facebook Live. If you're listening to this episode, our Facebook Live is going to be Sunday at 10 o'clock yeah a lot of fun stuff coming for us so pick um pick us me will be a good one we'll get to do that that'll be a lot of fun too let's talk about hazen don't hazen me bro yeah say that again get to talk about so, ambrose bierce ambrose bierce of course claiborne uh hiram granberry and howard and, whole, and talking about that atlanta campaign and talking about everything that that sherman had to do to try to get past joseph e johnson to atlanta so uh, this battle is a really good one, so hopefully uh, you enjoy that. All right, so off we go, Mary. So, uh, again, the pleasure was all yours. Any final words from you, Fincherou? Well, thanks for being an awesome co-host like you always are, and thanks for our listeners. And um, definitely stay tuned on our social media for the announcement about the Spengler Farm Tour with the in partnership with Gettysburg Foundation, and the tour will be given by our friend Mark Blanchard. Excellent. Final words from me. If you've been to Spotsylvania Battlefield, go check it out. You'll thank you'll thank me for it. It's if you haven't been, it's a great place to Amazing go. Place. All right. So off I go. Have a great weekend, everybody. We look forward to talking to you all on the other side. And of course, go Celtics, Mary. Yeah. We'll hope for See the hope for the later. best. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye.